0: Every interview I've had for the podcast or every conversation I've had, I should say, uh, stories get told yeah. and, and stories resonate with people. I think we see ourselves in other people's stories and that creates a feeling of solidarity that we're not alone in whatever it is that we're struggling with. And some of those stories contain solutions and can point people yeah. in, in the right direction. So I think it's important that we share our stories. Now, I mean, you can get flooded with stories and just not know where to go next. So I think it's just being empathetic toward one another and realizing that even if it looks like someone's got it all together from the outside and things are going great, everyone's struggling with something. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, and that's not an accusatory thing. Like everyone's struggling with, with something and, and some people are struggling more than other people, but I think it's just being empathetic to that. And, and I think, you know, just not being showy and and then just being willing to help someone. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode,
1: we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. So we're here with Mario Fraioli, And, you know, I came into your podcast probably a year ago when we were starting to get things going with ProKit and it was already well underway. And for me, now I've been listening for the past year a lot. And, you know, I don't have like a huge background in running. I'm someone who cares more about like endurance sports and just being out and whatever I can get time to do. But it's drawn me into the running world in a way that I never would have expected and has been really interesting. And it's almost like a micro look into what's going on in society more broadly. You talk much more about running. You talk about the triumphs and struggles and the good parts about competition, the bad, the social media pressure. So I've learned a lot just as a person. So really excited to have you here.
0: join well, us. Thanks. That means a lot to me. And that's what I hope people get out of the show more than just, here's how my last race went. And this is what my mile splits were because it's a lot deeper than that. And, you know, I think whether you're a professional athlete or you're an enthusiastic age grouper, there are a number of things that are going to affect your training in racing and your training and racing are going to affect a number of things in your life. And I love to dig into what that looks like for people and trying to find themes throughout those conversations. And a lot of times when I'm talking to these people, about those things. They're figuring it out for themselves cuz right. they've maybe had passing thoughts about it but they've never actually given it deep thought but when they're on the spot it's like that's all they've got to think about in the moment especially when I'm sitting across from them like I'm doing with you now you can see the wheels turning in their head and that's always been interesting for me so I'm glad it comes across you know on the other end as a listener. Yeah, and so
1: you've lifelong athlete, runner, you are senior editor at competitor magazine for a long time. You've covered All the big races, all the big people for, you know, over the years. I want to talk about your transition into podcasting and what you're doing now with the morning shakeout, which is both a newsletter and a podcast. You're obviously a coach as well. So we'll get into all of that. But I start with a really hard question, which is what did you have for breakfast this
0: morning? (laughs) I had a feeling you are gonna ask that because I listened to the Rich Roll episode and you led with that as well, so I am ready for it. Well, I was up early this morning, got out of bed at five because I was meeting someone to run at six and on the way to Trailhead to run, I had a Cliff Nut Butter Bar, I think it was Hazelnut Butter Bar, and a cup of coffee on the way to the run. And then after I finished up, I went over to Phil's Coffee here in Corte Madera, had more coffee, and uh, got a Phil's Bagel sandwich, which is like cream cheese. I think they sprinkle a little olive oil on it, tomato, and cucumber. Do you have the go-to breakfast? it you depends on the day. the day a lot of times if i'm in a pinch like i was this morning and it's going to be an hour or less from the time i get out of bed till the time i'm running i'll just grab a bar of some sort it's usually a cliff bar i also like those kids like z bars yeah the iced oatmeal those, ones. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah sure you're familiar with that uh, since you have a couple little ones of your own but i'll grab that in a pinch and if i have a little bit more time say you know over an hour maybe two hours before i'm going to run some typically out in the morning i will toast a couple pieces of bread Trader Joe's has this awesome cinnamon swirl bread and it's definitely a vice of mine but I will toast two pieces of those and spread a little bit of butter on top and then sometimes I'll even sprinkle a little more like cinnamon sugar on there and it's I don't think fairly certain actually it does nothing for performance but it's quick carbohydrates it tastes good it settles well in my stomach and that's usually what I'll have for run if I don't have that Before a run and I'm running from home, I'll usually have that afterward with some yogurt, maybe a banana. But this morning was, yeah, just really simple as cliff bar on the way to the run and bagel sandwich after. There we go.
1: So let's talk about your kind of your road into running and, you know,
0: you 10 year old Mario, what were you doing? not running uh i was doing what most 10 year olds in my area were doing i was playing youth soccer i was playing little league baseball i was basketball was my first love i was on a few basketball teams at that time but i played a bunch of different ball sports basketball baseball soccer namely and where did you grow up in central massachusetts a little town called auburn outside of worcester which is second biggest city in the state behind boston yeah
1: okay Very good. So what about, so you're playing basketball.
0: How did you, uh, where did that go? How did did that turn into? Man, I loved basketball. I was a big Celtics fan growing up. My house was around the corner from Holy Cross College, which is a small division one school. And they would make it to the NCAA tournament out of the Patriot League every year as a big fan, went to a lot of their games. Uh, Bob Cousy, who's kind of a Celtics legend, as far as a point guard went to Holy Cross and I wanted to be like Bob Cousy when yeah. I grew up. I wanted to go to Holy Cross and I wanted to play for the Celtics. And I went to school in Worcester in the city, ended up playing a lot of basketball as a kid like in after school leagues, wintertime, summer leagues, things like that. So I was really into basketball as Pretty decent at it. Played through junior high. And then in high school, I ended up going to an all-boys school named St. John's in uh, Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. A pretty big school. It was over a thousand students. They were Division one, one of the best teams in the state. Long story short, I did not make the team as a freshman. And I knew I was going to have a hard time making the team, not because I wasn't good enough, but there were some politics involved. And it was just hard to get a spot on the roster. So I transferred high schools. And went to the high school in my town in Auburn, uh, got on the basketball team my sophomore year. They were pretty good as well. And I was still just all in on basketball at that point of my life. And I would go to summer camp for basketball at Clark University where my mom worked. And there was a coach there named Jim White, who I became pretty close with. He worked with me personally. He had played in college and He was sort of a mentor for me as far as basketball went. And before my junior year of high school, he said, you should run cross country in the fall. It'll help you develop a good base of endurance for the basketball season. You'll be able to outrun anyone up and down the court and it'll fit in well with your preseason prep. I said, sure, do whatever you say. And I started running cross country at Auburn High my junior year. We did not have a big team or a strong team. There were less than... 10 people on it. The janitor at the school was our coach. He was an avid runner himself, but he wasn't a hardcore coach. He just did it cuz he loved running and he wanted to help out the kids. He was great, but we weren't really training. We raced twice a week and in between we'd run two maybe 3 miles. We never did speed workouts. And I didn't know anything about running training. I didn't really care. I loved to race. I realized that right away. I loved the competitive aspect of it. I loved that I was fully in control of my own destiny on race day. If I made a move and it panned out, I could win. And that was cool. And if it didn't pan out, it was on me. It was no one else's fault. So I really loved that about running from the beginning, but we weren't really training and sort of a big turning point for me was at the end of that season, my junior year, I was running in the last, well, it ended up being the last me of the year. It should have been like the next to last me of the year for the better kids, but it was the central mass championship and If you were on one of the top two or three teams, your team went to the state championship the following week, and if you were one of the top, I believe, two or three individuals who weren't on those teams, you would go to the state championship as an individual. Long story short, I missed by one spot. My team didn't have a prayer of going, but I missed the individual spot by one spot in like seven seconds, and that really lit a fire under my butt. I realized I was pretty good at running. I was better at it almost instantaneously than I was at basketball, which was a sport i have been playing my whole life Mm. at that point. And I remember being just so fired up after that race saying, I'm going to win the the state championship (laughs) next year. I'm going to actually train because I didn't train over the summer. I just started running cross country that fall and, you know, doing the two races a week and like, you know, didn't run on the weekends, that sort of thing. I was like, I'm actually going to train for this. And I know if I train for it, I can be pretty good, but I was still like committed to basketball and thought that's, what I was just going to do in the winter time. I didn't know about indoor track or spring track or anything like that at that point. And what ended up happening is I was on the basketball team. I was on the varsity team my junior year. We had a guy on the team named Kevin Reed, who was just phenomenal. I mean, he was one of the best players in the state. He ended up playing D1 at Maine and took them to the NCAA tournament, which was pretty cool. But I wasn't going to play as long as Kevin was there unless he really needed a breather. So I made the decision early on in the basketball season to quit and join the indoor track team once I realized we had one and haven't stopped since. That was the end of my basketball career and I ended up running indoor track that winter and in the springtime and really got interested in training theory and how people actually trained for long distance races because I knew there was more to it than what our coach was having us do, and it's just sort of continued to snowball from 1998 to now. So talk through like that. What happened when you went back to states the next year? I did not win the state championship, but I finished seventh. Oh, there you go. Um, That's pretty good from... Not making it to, (laughs) yeah, seventh in the state of Massachusetts. And, I mean, obviously, it's very bold of me to say as a junior who missed qualifying for the state meet that I'm going to win the next year, but I really thought that I could. And I ended up working pretty hard that summer going into my senior year, ran almost every day, was running, you know, maybe – 30, 40 miles a week, which is 30, 40 miles a week more than I did the summer before. And I mean, I saw the results of it. I was much more competitive, easily qualified for the state meet and was competitive at the state meet against some very good runners and realized that I could be a really good runner if I stuck with it. Yeah. And then so fast forward a couple of years. So you're running in college. Yeah. I ran mm-hmm. collegiately at Stonehill College in Northeastern Massachusetts Division two school. Okay
1: and you kept your love of running through that time as well?
0: Yeah, so I was recruited to go to Stonehill. I was not given a scholarship out of high school, and actually at the time they didn't have any scholarships, but I liked the fact that I knew I could run on the team there. It wasn't a D1 program. It wasn't super deep. It didn't have... It had a long history, but didn't have like a history of like great runners, but I knew I could be on the team there and I knew I was driven enough that I could succeed and the school was about an hour away from home. So it was far enough away that I could have some independence, but it was close enough that I could get back and my parents could go to races and all that sort of thing.
1: And so you went from school into journalism. Did you start in journalism, or did you... No, I
0: I actually... The only journalism class that I've ever taken in my entire life was in high school, and it was a half a year elective in journalism, and we had schooling in the classroom, and then our work, quote-unquote, was actually writing articles and putting together the school paper was how the, the program worked. But no, I didn't study journalism in college at all. And when did you get started in writing? You know, I... I've always been a writer looking back, even when I didn't know it. In second grade, we had this project where we had to publish our own book. And we got these eight and a half by 11 sheets of white paper. And we had to write a story and illustrate it. And we'd fold them in half and staple the spine. And then we'd take construction paper and, and make a cover. And then I thought this was the coolest thing. At the time, the teacher would laminate them. So he had this laminated book. And then we'd put them on the shelf in the library. And we had these like published books. And that was a huge thrill for me. I remember that very vividly. I wrote this book called The Adventures of Batman. And I, I'm sure it's in my parents' closet or, or attic somewhere. But I remember that just being such a huge thrill. Like I loved the process of producing this thing, which started as nothing and then eventually became this like finished product that I and others could enjoy. And I've just always enjoyed writing. I've journaled ever since I was a young kid. Even when I started running, I had a paper training log and I really liked writing my reflections on whatever workout I did that day a race that I ran that weekend in the training log, even though no one was reading it, but me. And then fast forward to college. I hated taking tests. I was never a good test taker, but I loved writing papers. And most people, I'd argue, were the opposite. They didn't mind taking tests and they hated writing papers, but I would take writing a paper over taking a test any day. And I ultimately ended up majoring in philosophy in college. And one of the reasons I ended up majoring in philosophy, because there weren't many tests. They were all papers. Uh, As long as you could state an argument and then back it up, you weren't going to fail. And there was something about that that was really appealing to me. And I didn't mind the long nights sitting in front of a computer, like writing away. So I've always loved writing. I just never knew where it was going to lead me.
1: So now you're a runner, a coach, podcaster, author, husband, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at the couple of decades later, how do you think of yourself? How's your career
0: and kind of yourself has developed? I mean, as all of those things that you just described, I I wouldn't say I'm just a runner or I'm just a podcast host or I'm just a writer, just a husband. Those are all parts of, of my identity. So I look at myself holistically in that way. And even beyond that, you know, I'm a friend, I'm a brother, I'm a nephew. Like those are all important parts of my life. And I appreciate all those parts of my life now at 37 years old. I can't say that I always, that I always did, or I always knew that. Those were all aspects that helped define me as a whole person, but now they do, and it's something I try to keep in mind all the time. But it's interesting looking back in the rear view to be cliche about, it, it's like hindsight is 2020. Yeah. 20. So if I look back at, you know, just sort of my progression as a human and as an athlete and the things that interested me and the decisions that I've made along the way it makes a lot of sense that I'm doing what I'm doing now, you know, professionally and personally, because they're all threads that have been there my entire life and now they're just interwoven. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking about that as a coach. So, you know, for people
1: who aren't familiar with it, you, you coach some, some elite like professional runners and
0: some everyday runners as well. Or... Yeah, I, yeah. I mean at least more than half my roster is age group athletes right. who don't do it professionally and have a lot of other things going yeah. on in their life. I sense in your podcast, like a lot of
1: empathy for who each person is. Mm -hmm. You were interviewing um, the Australian guy who's in Boulder. Lee Troop. Yeah. And you guys both value the personal connection. You'll just pick up the phone sometimes and call you. There's not a lot of that happening right now. Right. You know, not just in the running world, in life in general. So
0: how do you kind of think of yourself as a coach? Uh, So I think that's a good start. It's interesting that... I am coaching, like, well, coaching, I should say, is how I spend most of my quote unquote working time. When I was trying to figure out in college what I wanted to do, Professionally, I had no idea. I mean, I switched my major so many times and I ended up on philosophy because I liked writing and I liked the subject matter and I like thinking about things. But part of it was I was like, oh, well, this would actually be a good way to get into grad school. And my minor was psychology. I'm like, this would be a good way to get into grad school and maybe get into counseling of some yeah. sort, because I've always liked listening to people going as far back as junior high when friends of mine were going through a breakup or their parents right. were divorced. I was always the person who wanted to hear about that stuff and not that I had all the answers by any means, but at least I could listen and I knew there was a lot of value in that. Maybe sometimes I could provide some perspective that got them to think differently about a situation. I do a lot of that as a coach today and then, you know, marrying that with uh, what I was describing earlier about, studying training theory because I didn't have a great coach in high school as far as that went trying to understand how people train for these longer distance events and it's like you're merging those two things like the yeah people come to me for coaching because they want to prepare for an ultra race or run a marathon PR or qualify for Boston or whatever it may be and there's something formulaic about that it's looking at their training and trying to put the Xs and Os together but for me it is very personal and I have an athlete roster cap that I've landed on in the last couple of years where, you know, only a set number of athletes that I can work with because the level of time and attention that I give each one is so high that it's just not scalable. And it's because I, Get to know the athletes is more than just an yeah. athlete like they're a person and even if they're a professional it's how they're making their living you know it's understanding what else they've got going on in their mm-hmm. lives at a given time and how that's going to affect their training and racing and then on the flip side how their training and racing are fitting into the rest of their lives because if you know if there's not a level of harmony there they're not going to have the success that they want to have if their training and racing is causing family stress or it's taken away from their ability to perform at work, that's not good. And on the Mm -hmm. flip side, it's like if their personal situation or their professional situation isn't allowing them to do the type of training that they need to do to get where they want to go, then we've got to figure that out too. So it's like, you know, and the only way you can understand that is by talking to people and and talking Mm -hmm. to them frequently and on a deep level. So I've always just been a curious person and Mm -hmm. for me, like the coaching I do is very personal. When I left competitor in 2016, it was to join a coaching startup in San Francisco. And the idea was to scale coaching. And I was the director of coaching. And I had this idea for me, what coaching was. And it was you know, it's what I just described. Yeah, And they're like, that's not scalable. No, and I, exactly. Well, and I, good luck, well, it wasn't even, it wasn't right. even them realizing it wasn't scalable. It was yes, me realizing like, that it, that work. it wasn't scalable. And it's like, this isn't what I think of as coaching. And this just isn't a good fit for me. And, you know, that was three years ago and I've been working for myself ever since. And I think, you know, I just don't think like what I can do the way that I like to coach. I'm not saying it's the one right way, but it's the way that I do it. And it's the way that I know how to do it best. Like it's not a scalable thing. So for me, it's like, I take a lot of pride in the relationships that I have with my athletes. And a lot of those relationships are long. I mean, I've got a couple athletes I've been coaching for 10 or 11 years now, and and many of them for the last like seven or eight years. And some of the newer ones I've still had for three years at this point. And it's like, you know, that's what coaching is. It's not 16 weeks of marathon training resulting in a personal best, like on some level, that's a small part of it. It's an ongoing relationship. It's yeah, guiding a person's training, but you know, I also look at it as a bit of life coaching as well. I've had athletes comment to me on that and. You know, I'm fortunate that I've had good coaches after high school that taught me the value in that. And then a lot of the conversations I've had for the podcast with Lee, as you just described, right. um, Frank Gagliano, who's a big idol and mentor of mine, who's 82 years old and still coaching 58 years later, like really drilled that into my head that it, it's like, this isn't a three-month thing. It's not a four-month thing. If you're really into coaching for the right reasons, it's a much longer commitment than that. Yeah. That
1: episode with Frank Gagliano, I would highly recommend anybody listening to go to the morning shakeout and look that one up that was it whether it doesn't matter
0: what you're into he just has it, so that, much wisdom and experience yeah. and knowledge and he dropped he'd never been on a podcast before and he dropped all of it uh, yeah. maybe not even all of it but he dropped a lot of it in yeah. the hour and 20 minutes that we talked yeah
1: that was amazing i mean he was you could see how much he cares like his ability to draw up People who he had coached 40 years ago, and talk about it like it was yesterday. Yeah,
0: and and he shed tears during that conversation, thinking about some of his earliest athletes. (laughs) It's Uh, impossible. And and it's interesting. And he calls his athletes family. And Lee Troop, who you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. as he was describing his relationship with his athletes, he has them over for barbecues. They're like his second set of kids. They're family to him. And I mean, a lot of the athletes that I work with, many of them are close to my age, some of them a little bit older. I've got a couple now that are, are young enough to be like, not my kids, but younger yeah. siblings for sure. And that's how I think of them as well. It's like, they're a big part of my life. And yeah. some of them who I'm not writing workouts for, I still am in very close touch with. And I think that's what it's about. It's about those types of relationships. For in those relationships,
1: watching people go through, you know, this is something I've learned in the people that I'm talking to as well as like the, you could have a really bad day mentally outside of whatever you know because it's something with your kids or at work that really draws your energy out and Mm -hmm. that could be the day that you've got your biggest workout lined up which is no different than it could be the day that you have your biggest presentation at work right and you've kind of that whole person coaching like how you view yourself more than one of those things like how do you help people through those periods where they're burnt out or they're stressed and
0: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I have to openly say that I'm in the business of stress management. Right. And it's exactly as you just described. There's training stress, there's work stress, there's life stress, there's emotional stress, there's physical stress, but it's all stress. And your body can't really... Differentiate between any of it. It just knows that it's being stressed. And there's a capacity there that if you exceed it and you're overly stressed out, you could get hurt. You may snap at your spouse or a coworker uh, or your kids. You know, you may fall into like a little bit of depression. Like all these things can happen. And I think that's you know, back to the holistic nature of my coaching, it's getting to know the athlete is more than an athlete and as a person and, you know, the different things that are going on in their life. And it's not being nosy necessarily, you know, anytime, if an athlete doesn't want to talk to me about something, it's, I'm not going to really like force the issue, but a lot of them are very open with me about what's going Mm. on. And, you know, I'm careful to respect that and respect their confidentiality and all of that stuff. But, As I tell them, like the more information that I have about what you've got going on, the better decisions I can make in regard to your training. Because if I know that work is crazy and you're putting in 80 hour weeks right now, but I've got 10 hours of training on your schedule and because you're a type A person who wants to check all the boxes, you're going to do that 10 hours of training come hell or high water and it means you're sleeping four hours a night. I'm like, you know, it's like, that's not good. (laughs) I'm like, I need to know that if I know that, then, you know, I can't do anything about your 80 hour work weeks. And maybe that's the reality for a while, but I can adjust your training to make sure that, you know, the stress load is manageable and that we're not overdoing it because I've been doing this long enough and I've done it myself as an athlete where I've gone over that edge and it can be really hard to pull yourself back up after that.
1: What about the, you know, the more of the age group athlete who's out doing the best they can in the time they have, you know, adding a big event or signing up for something or having a big new goal. A lot of people fall off that, right? Like it's like a change in habits is required when you're getting started with a new athlete who has a big aspiration, Mm -hmm. but it does require some structural changes. You have to find new time. You have to reprioritize what have you found works? Cause it's really almost like habit training, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, on a very basic level, it's just talking them about what does their typical week look like? Yeah. You know, what time do you wake up most mornings? What commitments do you have? Get your Kids off to school, get them breakfast. Like how much time do you have? Like, let me look at your week as a whole and like, You know some of those things are very fixed like whether it's work hours or when kids go to school and it's like what is your time like maybe monday you have no time and that's going to be a rest day maybe tuesday you've got like a half an hour and we can make the most of that half hour by sending you off to the gym Maybe Fridays you work a half a day and you've got a three hour window in the morning. It's like, okay, maybe we'll make that like your long day. So it's getting to know that for each athlete and like what's going on in their life and being like, okay, you've got five hours a week. Like let's maximize those five hours. doesn't mean we're going to go full throttle for five hours, but we want to make the best use of that time that we can and looking at that in the context of everything else that's going on, making sure that you have, we've built in, you know, enough time for rest and recovery. You know, we've accounted for all those other stresses that we talked about so that we're not overloading the trainings on the yeah. training side of things.
1: On training, are there common pieces that you see people missing? Like mistakes that the average kind of endurance athlete is consistently making
0: where you're, uh, the obvious fixes <laughs> Yeah. The two biggest ones that jump out to me are overall consistency. If you want to be good at running or anything, really, you've got to be at it for a long time. And there are people who be at it for 10, 12 weeks at a time. And then for whatever reason, things sort of fall off the rails for a while. And then they try to get back into it and it's a lot harder. I've just, I'm a huge believer in consistency and doesn't mean you're training at the same level throughout the year. But you've developed like those habits that you talked about earlier. So, you know, for me, it's trying to get the athletes to develop consistently good habits. And if we can keep those going over time, they're going to see success. But a lot of times that consistency piece is missing. The second thing is most, I'm sure this goes for other endurance athletes as well, but most runners are running too hard most Mm -hmm. of the time. It's generally about 20, 25% of your overall week should be at an intensity that I would consider hard and that can be various degrees of hard and most and the rest of it should actually be fairly easy to moderate. Whereas a lot of people that's like half of their week is really hard. And the other half of the week is just like moderately hard. Uh, They're in this gray zone all the time and you can get away with it for a while, especially when you're new to a sport or new to a different type of training, but eventually you plateau and you're just not going to go anywhere for a while. So, like one of the most common things I do with athletes this is age groupers and even some of the elites is slow them down and getting them to I mean people who come to me for coaching they usually have a big goal they're pretty driven a lot not all of them but a lot of them have like type A type personalities where they'll do whatever they're told so it's getting them to buy in and take their rest and recovery days a lot more seriously. In some cases it's actually getting them to take a rest day and realizing the value in that and that it's a part of training. It's not a punishment from training, but you know, on the whole, I mean, a lot of runners will just go out and their knuckleheads and they'll, they're not running that hard, but they're not running easy yeah. either. And it's like, so they're not getting as much as they can out of their hard workouts and they're not really recovering when they should be recovering. What about strength training for you? where does that fit into the patent to the so my thinking on my thinking on strength training has evolved over time i've never enjoyed it myself as an athlete i've never liked going to the gym even in college when we had to do it i would do it begrudgingly it just not that i didn't see the value i just didn't enjoy it i liked running a lot more and even for a good chunk of my post-collegiate Career—that's the first thing to fall by the wayside. And in in recent years, for myself as an athlete, as I've gotten into my mid to upper thirties, I've realized how important it is just for overall health and body balance and longevity. And I'm pretty religious about getting into the gym once a week when I'm home. It's a lot harder to do that when I'm traveling, but I'll still do exercises while I'm on the road. And it doesn't have to be super fancy. It doesn't have to be super hard. It just, like I was saying, it needs to be consistent. And it's just like I've made that a consistent part of my week. Like Thursday mornings when I'm I'm home, I'm in the gym in San Francisco at 630. And that's a staple for me. And I've I've seen the results in my running. I ran my best that's marathon so ever last fall. Two twenty-seven thirty-three, and and the ten weeks before that marathon were, you know, everyone say, well, well, like sixty miles a week is not low mileage for me. That's pretty low mileage before a marathon, but I was consistent with it. But I was also consistent with the gym work, and I felt better at the end of that race. And I came out of it better than I ever have. And I know a lot of that is due to the strength training that I did. Like I just felt more solid. Mm-hmm. I, you know, not that looks or, or anything at all, but I just like looked more solid and the end of the race, like I didn't fall apart. So translating that into coaching, you know, it's not something early on in my coaching days that I ever really emphasized. And some of my athletes have their own strength coach or personal trainer that they work with. And that's great. I don't try to mess with it. I want to know what they're doing and when they're doing it so that I can plan it into their week. But I try to have all of my athletes doing some type of strength training every week. And, it doesn't have to be getting in the gym. It doesn't have to be putting up heavy weights, though there is benefit to that. And you, I think you want to be doing that under the eye of a coach because it can be dangerous otherwise. But at minimum, getting them to do some body weight work, you know, two to three times a week, because I think it's... You know, I say like, I don't coach runners, I coach athletes who specialize in running. And I'm really trying to focus on that athlete part and running is only one part of athleticism. And I think strength training and mobility is a huge component, regardless of what you're doing, like strengthening your body so that it's resilient, so that you can get the most power out of it that you can, but also so that you can do it for a long time. I mean, I think strength training is huge, just overall resiliency Mm -hmm. to injuries. I also think for a lot of people, especially older athletes, it can help them tap into speed that just running isn't going to touch. And I think if you're doing it well and doing it for long enough, like you really see the performance benefits of it as well, Mm -hmm. just from being a better, more well-rounded athlete.
1: What are the, you know, you're on the road. What are the type of body weight work that,
0: what does that look like? So you can actually find this online. If you Google like Mario for strength training, I have a routine that I put together a few years ago when I was at competitor and I've since reposted it to medium, but a lot of simple exercises and you don't need a lot of equipment. So it's push ups, reverse dips. Some core exercises, uh, lunges, squats. Um, If you are able to get one of those balance balls, you can do some hamstring curls and some other abdominal type of work on that. If you have access to like just a simple dumbbell, single leg deadlifts, and I think I said lunges and squats. You know already, I think that covers most of the big bases. There's a couple more in there that I'm I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but it's just like ten exercises and it kind of hits everything from head to toe, and they're very basic movements, it's better than nothing. And you could certainly build off of of that. But in my experience, especially not just age group athletes, a lot of professional athletes as well, when they're left to their own devices, they're not doing any type of strength training. Until they're forced to, it's usually when they yeah, get hurt, you get hurt. <clears throat> it's usually when you get hurt and you get prescribed some rehabilitative exercises and you end up doing them for a short period of time and then you're better and it goes out the window. But I'm telling you in my experience as an athlete and as a coach, I have seen that the athletes who are doing some sort of strength training on a consistent basis are healthier over time. Their performances are more consistent and they're just better overall athletes hmm.
1: What about, um, kind of transitioning to the running world? Like give us the high level view for people who aren't like deeply in it on where the trends are going, like the
0: participation rates, like what's kind of happening right now. It's a snapshot. Well, the running world is pretty segmented in terms of like distance running, road racing, you know, then you've got ultras, you've got track racing. So I'll just kind of over each of those things. I mean, I coach a lot of ultra runners. I've been into it myself since moving here to the Bay in 2014. The sport overall, especially here in the US, but globally, is seeing a lot of growth. And it's still pretty small potatoes compared to the overall running pie. But More events, uh, more athletes running these events, more brands getting into the space, more sponsorship dollars coming into the space, both on an individual athlete side and for a lot of these events. And it's interesting because they're obviously not easy things, right? But I think that's why people are doing them. Like they're looking for that next challenge. Maybe they've already done the marathon or the half marathon and they want to scare themselves a little bit more and what better way to scare yourself than going out into the wild for several hours and seeing if you can make it around a mountain so definitely growth in ultra running and it's interesting i've said this in a couple other places before my wife's a triathlete so i've been around the sport of triathlon a bit the last eight or nine years and I don't do triathlons myself, but I've observed the sport both on the ground at the events themselves from an age grouper's perspective, but follow it a little bit too professionally. And I joke that ultra running is a new triathlon. There are a lot of similarities as far as the, the growth patterns go. In terms of like the races and the athletes participating in them and who's getting into them. And, you know, on the professional side, the way athletes are being sponsored, it's very similar to what's happened in triathlon. And, and I think ultra running is kind of in a space now where triathlon was maybe 10 to 15 years ago. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, there's a bit of gear involved in ultra running. There's certainly a lot more gear in, in triathlon, but it's very different than say marathoning or road racing or track and field where you really don't need a whole lot, but ultra running, you can buy the hydration pack and the poles and the gaiters and the jacket. And, <laughs> and you're going to obsess over it. Yeah, people, gonna, well, and, matter, and people right? do. I mean, we can go off on a whole yeah, tangent right. about how people obsess over the details and they're not nailing the big stuff. But, yeah. you know, from the ultra running side of things, that's definitely becoming a trend. you know, moving over to the roads and, and marathoning, what's interesting to me, and, and I'm representative of this, is there is this resurgence of the competitive amateur runner. And we're seeing that, I'd say, at, at the highest level of that, here in the U.S. is with the Olympic trials. The 2020 Olympic trials in the marathon are going to have way more qualifiers than they've, they've had in quite some time. And I was at CIM last fall. As I said, I ran my personal best nowhere close to an Olympic trials qualifying time. It's not what I was going after. But, you know, I ran 227, which is a respectable marathon time. And I I was 133rd place, (laughs) which is crazy, you know, at the California International Marathon. So it's been great to see that resurgence nationwide, but also globally, you know, a lot more of the kind of like 220 to 240 type men and like 230 to like three hour type women who, you know, are just are racing and being competitive. And I think that's pretty cool to see. And that's a bit of a resurgence because that's what things were sort of like in the eighties when marathoning was not a participatory sport. It was a race and it's still very much a participatory sport now, but the racing side of it is starting to see a little bit of a resurgence. And I'm interested to see where that goes past the Olympic year. I mean, just Boston marathon opened up for registration last week and sold like registration filled up faster than it's ever filled up and the gap to get in they tighten the standards and now it's like i think it's like five minutes under the new standards which is kind of crazy so it's like they're probably gonna have to tighten it up again and that's good that's a sign Mm -hmm. that the sport of marathoning is healthy and it's in a good place outside of that there are outside of these traditional events are some non-traditional things that we're seeing like the speed project out of la which is a 300 miles maybe 240 miles I can't remember what it is but basically you go to LA go from LA to Vegas and it's like very underground they don't advertise it there's no real rules but it has this, this big like social media following and it's kind of all done on Instagram and live stream and it's got this cool factor to it. And other events have popped up just like that. And I was texting with one of my athletes who lives in New York this morning and she sent me an article on the Orchard Street Runners put on these events in New York and they, they take place at night and they're very secretive and they're kind of like invite only. And the, the course is like, generally 10k ish. And there's like four checkpoints that you have to go to and there's no medals and there's you yeah. know no circuit. Like I think the winner gets 150 bucks and there's a party afterward, but it's very like underground and it's unsanctioned. And, and there's something that's cool about that yeah. and pure. And, and we're seeing more of that. You know, globally, the rise of run crews, especially in major cities, it's starting to kick up a little bit here in San Francisco, but it's a little behind where places like LA and New York are. And and these run crews in some ways resemble running clubs that have been around for a long time, but, you know, there may be a little more social and cohesive and competitive than a lot of the traditional clubs, but there's like typically a younger crowd and identity involved and things like that. But those are popping up all over the world. And then I think, you know, on the track side of things, it's kind of dying a bit, honestly, (laughs) like not to be totally morbid, but like interest in things like the Olympics and the world championships is going down. I mean, doping runs rampant through it all. And I think that puts a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths and The sport, even though on a participatory level here in the U.S., in terms of like high school and colleges, is is pretty big. At the professional level, it's pretty sad. I mean, in Europe, it's a professional sport and stadiums sell out. Here in the U.S., they just had the U.S. championships in Des Moines at the end of July, and there's nobody there. (laughs) I mean, there's like nobody there. And the world championships are in Doha at the end of this month, uh, September. And, I mean, people are not going to flock to Doha to watch track meet. just not going to happen. So the sport keeps shooting itself on the foot in many ways and this is not a new trend it's kind of been spiraling downward Mm. for a while but it it just amazes me that it continues to spiral downward so
1: one question on the you know our backdrop is the mountains of the bay area behind us or hills mm-hmm. whatever you'd like to call them but the trail ultra st- it's photogenic it's adventurous to for the younger audience it's more experience based it has that right mm-hmm. you can do camps around it there's all sorts of things that you can build in that more than just the run and that's I've, and that's growing yeah it, and i camps heard, and things like that i've heard you talk about this is getting more into the nuances but you know in europe you can get more people out on the public lands or not you know out on the mountains for a race and here the races are capped you know the question about could you get trail or ultra into the olympics i've heard you answer that what's your perspective on that especially as it relates to the us like how does the sport grow
0: yeah the sport's in a different place here. It's smaller for a number of reasons, but as you just alluded to, a lot of it comes down to permitting. Many of these races that trail ultras anyway, are run on public lands. And the reason a lot of the races sell out is because the field size is capped at a few hundred yeah. people, even Western States, which is the most popular ultra in the U S and is the original hundred miler. It's 375 people and that's some of the appeal, but you know, you can only make a 375 person race seem so big. Whereas I was just at UTMB in France and it's a week long festival of races. They have distances ranging from, I think the new one this year was like the 10 K fun run or something, but they have a 50 K, a 90, like a hundred and. 101k and then something that's like 140 and the grand one's like a, the UTMB itself is 170 and there's thousands of people in every race and you're in the town of Chamonix and it has this big time feel to it like it feels like the Super Bowl over there and, and it is very much a professional sport and it's televised well and the US isn't even close to that and it's, it's always going to be limited by the permitting side of things and, and I mean ultra running is more than just running around a scenic mountain I mean you have people who are doing 24 hour records on the track and national championships and such on the road, but that's not as sexy as the, the trail and mountain stuff. It doesn't photograph quite as well for Instagram, but I mean, we're seeing some growth there, like in terms of like Zach Bitter just ran world record for hundred miles on the track. Camille Heron ran a 24 hour record, not that long ago. So people are trying this stuff, but I mean, the number of people who are doing it is so small that I mean, any growth is meaningful growth, but I don't know how big it's going to get
1: is there a solution on the public lands piece? It seems like celebrating people being out using the lands on their feet.
0: Yeah. I think not too complicated. You know, I don't know. It, it shouldn't be, but I mean, dealing with the government's complicated and getting yeah. permits for these things is complicated. I mean, the North Face Endurance Challenge, which is one of the most competitive ultras in this country. It's right here in our backyard in the Marin headlands. And I think like that's actually a pretty big race in terms of numbers for the U S it's like close to 800, maybe I could be wrong. It's between five and 800 and there's a big prize purse. It's like 10,000 people. So, you know, the people who want to race it will show up, but, Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to like all of a sudden let 5,000 people, you know, on the trails because they're worried about the damage and and the precedent it sets too, right? So it's like, oh, well, if they pay enough money to get 5,000 people on the trail, why can't we have a big mountain bike event out here? And I just don't think the, the powers that be want to go down that road. Like, it's very difficult. I just don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, unless someone buys like a huge, yeah. you know, a huge uh, chunk of land and creates their own trails, I like, I don't care how many people we have out here, but unless someone does that, I don't really see it growing much beyond what it's at right now.
1: Are there companies or organizations that are kind of leading the way and front
0: lines of setting the trends in the space right now? Well, I mean, North Face has done so from an event perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've had the Endurance Challenge Series for a number of years now and have grown it beyond I mean, beyond the U.S., really. I mean, they have some international races now, too. I know they've got one in Costa Rica and I think one in Europe. I'm not confident on that. So they're definitely invested in it. I can't imagine it's a huge money maker for them, given how much it costs to put on these events and the small number of people that can do them. But they're committed to it because they want to grow the sport and create those opportunities. And they're doing it from a product and athlete perspective as well. Solomon is huge in the space uh, based in Europe. So ev- over there, they're even bigger, but they sponsor a lot of the top athletes. They're sponsoring more events. They're bringing on more ambassadors here in the U.S. i S I'm actually doing an event with them here in Mill Valley on October 1st, where it's going to be like kind of trail running clinic type thing, very grassroots type of deal. So it's like their investment, like the brands that are in it, Hoka, you know, is doing more and more here in the U S and globally as well. And as I said earlier, like a lot of brands now, because there is growth in that part of the sport are getting into it like last few years adidas and nike which are legacy running brands and have been in the sport of running for a long time and have made trail running shoes and product but have really started making a push in terms of like sponsoring athletes and getting behind events and kind of growing things so it's like there's a lot of momentum which is exciting in the sport and more and more brands getting into it but i'd say like yeah like north face is definitely leading the way Solomon's leading the way in terms of like, and they're true to that kind of stuff. Like that's in their DNA. Whereas some of these other brands, like, you know, I think they're getting into it on a deeper level because it's hot right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there.
1: What about on the, between the people you coach and the people you interview and your connection to the, um, I really get this in your interviews. You had Amelia Boone and Mm -hmm. Brad, Brad Stolberg. Stolberg on your show recently, One on the anxiety side of things and another on eating disorder side of things, Mm -hmm. which, you know, obviously those things are not limited to the running world. I think they're a snapshot of what's happening much more broadly. Sure. Um, You've done a good job of unpacking, like there's the comparison stuff going on in social media, the world I came from, everybody trying to, you know, you got in your episode with um, with Lee, the coach, um, just the pressures that
0: people... Yeah. So, I mean and, and just to give that one some context, he had an athlete who took his life right. and you know, as I described earlier, for Lee his athletes or his family, so it was for him it was like, you no, know, you losing a losing that, a kid yeah. and it was you know, it was a a young man and his mid twenties, trying to make a go of it as a professional runner and just feeling the pressure to perform and play the role of professional athlete. And, you know, he had some struggles mm-hmm. and it just like, it was too much for him to handle, but you know, not everyone's a professional athlete deal with those types of pressures, but similar ones exist in other arenas. Yeah.
1: I'm more, uh, you know, I'm in this cause I care about health, right. Mm-hmm. And helping more people get to that outcome, whatever it is that they're looking for. But we can also get so caught up in the chase and the pursuit and the status and the vanity and the, you know, there's a lot of things around us pushing us the other way. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, what do we do? Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think a very basic thing we can all do, whether it's on a, an individual level or through a platform like Instagram or Facebook or on a blog or on a podcast is just share our stories. I, I think, I mean, that's been, The every interview I've had for the podcast or every conversation I've had, I should say stories get told and and stories resonate with people. I think we see ourselves in other people's stories and that creates a feeling of solidarity that we're not alone in whatever it is that we're struggling with. And some of those stories contain solutions and can point people in, in the right direction. So I think it's important that we share our stories now. I mean, you can get flooded with stories and just not know where to go next so I think it's just being empathetic toward one another and realizing that even if it looks like someone's got it all together from the outside and things are going great I mean I've just learned like everyone's struggling with something yeah and that's not a bad thing and right. that's not an accusatory thing like everyone's struggling with something and some people are struggling more than other people but I think it's just being empathetic to that and I think just not being showy and, and then just being willing to help someone yeah. I mean as I you know, we talked a little bit earlier. Like, I'll pick up the phone and just call my athletes and see how they're doing. But I'll do that with my friends. I'll do it with my brother. I'll do it with my dad. I and mean, we all have phones in yeah. our pocket. We don't use them to call people all that much. Like, pick up the phone and just call someone. And, that can go a lot further. I mean, text works too. Like just even sending someone a text, let you know that they're thinking of, let them know that you're thinking about them can go a long way. But it's easy to just kind of get swept up in the inertia of our lives that we forget to do that. I'm guilty of it as well. But, you know, I try to do that on a regular basis, whether it's like, you know, calling my dad a few times a week on the East Coast, checking in with my brother, calling my athletes when, I'm sure when I leave here in a little while, I'll get in the car, I'll get on the phone and I'll call someone. It's just kind of what I do. I try to fill like those cracks of my day because I want to know that people are doing okay but people like to know that people are thinking about them goes a long way and and you don't need to be a professional athlete to do that or professional anything
1: yeah what about you as a athlete you know i remember earlier in the year you struggled just with some burnout right which is super common yeah (laughs) like how do you you know you've got a lot going on between the coaching your own running
0: Mm -hmm. podcast how do you keep it all together yeah i definitely dealt with some burnout earlier this year and it was as much personal and professional as it was athletic i mean i think it all as we were talking together. yeah exactly yeah it's all it, the same, it, yeah, it, all the same. And, and all these things affect one another and i i think for me like you know speaking to the running side specifically i was really excited after cim last fall set a personal bests revitalized me athletically in a lot of ways and my eyes got really big and i wanted to do all these things in the spring. Like I'm going to chase up all right, I'm not going to run a marathon this spring, but I'm going to chase a 5k PR. I'm going to go all in on the 5k PR. Not even PR, just like racing well over 5k and knowing that I needed to take a break after CIM and taking what I thought was a long enough break and didn't end up being a long enough break and tried to go hard at it for like 4 or 5 months which is too long for me and I just lost some of that I fizzled. I mean, I lost some of that excitement and I had these races that I was signed up for in April. And by like early March, I was just completely fried. I didn't want to do hard workouts anymore. I just wanted to take a bit of a break, but I was committed to these races and the travel was covered. And, and I just like, I had to just accept that. I mean, because I think it's our natural tendency to fight it. And I accepted it and I was like, okay, well, I've got these races. I'll still do the races. And kind of like when I was in high school, you know, I still, I just love to race. I'd much rather race than, than do a workout. But I was like, you know, I'm not excited about these workouts right now. And if I'm not excited about them, I mean, not that you're going to be excited for all of them, but if I'm just generally not excited to train, then I shouldn't train. I'll just, I'll, I'll run what I want to run and That's what I did. I was getting up on the trails like a little bit more and to spend more time with friends and generally not running hard. And then I just raced and yeah, I would have raced a lot better if I had stuck to the training plan and done the workouts. But I also realized I I just couldn't force it because I was just going to dig the hole even deeper. And then, yeah, I mean, personally, professionally, it's like I was trying to do all that around you know, putting newsletter out every week, like growing the podcast, like traveling a whole bunch. And I just did a bad job managing my own, you know, managing yeah. my own stress. And self-awareness is huge for me. I mean, I've been better at developing that over the years. And I was just aware that that's what I had done. And I backed off. I think I wrote in my newsletter in one week. I was like, you know, I'm just not into it this week. Like, here's what I've done to this point. Yeah. I decided I wasn't going to do, you know, anymore. And it was just like giving myself that bit of you know just kind of like that bit of grace and like you know being well, to easy. your point it's refreshing for people to see because yeah you know we all have that those
1: weeks or months or years whatever it is
0: yeah i mean everyone's gone through it yeah. at some point and it's like for the most part a lot of us are ambitious people in some areas of, of our life And when you're ambitious about something like that's great but it can also be your kryptonite
1: um, you just brought up your podcast on the kind of the state of the podcast. State of the ShakeOut. State of the ShakeOut. Issue Also, 200. the media. Where is the, um, this could either be big picture state of media or specific to kind of the running and sports world, but mm-hmm. where are things going on the big, on the media side and how have the podcast
0: and newsletter pieces fit in? It's interesting. I mean, do you mean media in general or like running, endemic running media? uh a little bit of both i mean you came competitor covered endemic running yeah Yeah. so so i mean i think in i mean media the landscape is just constantly shifting i think bigger media companies are having a tougher and tougher time reaching an audience and the way a lot of these companies survive and make money and pay their bills is by scaling. And when you're scaling things, you can't really personalize them. And not that there is no value to that approach, but I think people are looking for more and more of personal connection these days. So I think that's why I'm able to do what I do because it's just me. And like I wrote in the state of the shakeout, people can reply to my email every week and I'll write them back. And I think that's not going to happen at a bigger brand. And for me, it's like I have like a few people who help me out and they get paid for their work, but it's like, I'm not paying a full staff. Right. So it's like, from, you know, thinking about it from a, a business standpoint, it's like, I've just, I've got to support myself and like cover my needs. And that's easier to do than trying to do it for a whole staff and scaling and all that. But I think like the way people consume media, it's shifting and they're looking for things that they resonate with, whether it's other personalities, whether it's training tips, whether it's nutrition type stuff, like they don't want general advice anymore. They're looking for something that speaks to them. So people are following writers. If they bounce from publication to publication, a lot of them are striking out on their own, such as myself. And, you know, you develop a following that way. And that's, I mean, that's been happening for a while now, but it's becoming more and more prominent, certainly in running, but also, you know, outside of that. And I mean, people, I hate being called my own brand, but people are becoming their own, you know, their own brands and they have their own ways of communicating, whether it's like, for me, it's email on the podcast for some people, like it's through social platforms. Some people are still using blogs. Other people are, you know, actually still like mailing stuff out to people. Like it's kind of, it's diversified quite a bit. But, you know, speaking to running specifically, the staffs of the bigger publications in running the runner's world competitors now podium runner, trail runner, you know, they're shrinking and they've they've shrunk I don't know how they get smaller, but they've like shrunk to a pretty small degree. So you've got people there who are working as hard as they can, but they're trying to cater to masses of people and they're still, you know, they haven't evolved in terms of what their media model was, you know. Never mind, five years ago, but from like 10 or 15 years ago, it's like still, you know, oh, well, we still make a magazine. Maybe we'll just do four a year instead of 12. And we still have a, a website and we'll still litter it with banner ads and like post a lot of crap to Facebook. And because those things don't carry as much value as they used to, they're chasing scale. And when you're chasing scale like that, the quality of the content suffers. So, you know, for me, it's like, I'm in control of what I want to do so I can produce quality content every week. And and a lot of other creators are doing the same thing, whether it's through their podcast or through their website or through their newsletter or or doing it on their social channels that you're just not finding in the bigger publications anymore because they're spread so thin and they're trying to cater to too many.
1: Um, For you, you know, supporting on the business side between you have like Patreon, which for people who aren't familiar with Patreon, you can support... People's content directly, you like, sure. Directly, and then you've got sponsorships, mm-hmm. and you seem like your sponsorships go pretty well. You've got like one per month. Is that kind of your model?
0: Yeah, you're... I stick to one per month for yeah. the newsletter, and then for the podcast, it's on a per episode oh, right. basis, yeah. or you know, certain. I mean, I think there's again value and consistency yeah. having a brand sponsor four to five episodes. But yeah, it's a combination of a sponsorship model and reader and listener support, which you know is not. Unique. Yeah. Uh, I borrowed that idea from Surfers Journal. They yeah. put out a magazine. Surfers Journal's tagline is uh, "Reader supported with uh, assistance from like these five brands that are share consistent values with the content that they're putting out." And that's what I try to do as well. You know, the reader support over the long term is more sustainable. And yeah. you know, I look at my readers and my listeners as investors in the morning shakeout because they're forking their money over to support my work. And, you know, some people do exclusive content on Patreon and people are paying for that. And for me, it's, there's no real exclusive content, Billy Yang. And I do a podcast every week that is available to, to Patreon only. And that's it. But it's like that, that's not what people are. Yeah putting the money up for. They want to support my work because they genuinely find value in it. That means a lot to me. And then the sponsorship stuff, it's going well, but it's a lot less predictable. I mean, sponsors can pull out or I've had months and episodes of the podcast where I haven't had any, and that means I'm I'm not getting paid. So it's like trying to find the right balance with that sort of stuff, but also... You know, this is what's important to me, too, is like my name is on all of this and I'm really proud of the work that I do. So the brands that I partner with, I want to be consistent with the values that I'm, you know, in the content that I'm putting out every week. So like the the sponsors that I have have been pretty consistent over the last couple of years, like new ones will pop in every so often. But it's like if I'm partnering with a brand, I want to have used their product. I want to believe in their product. I want to bend to their event or believe in their event, you know, something that I can get behind and support because my readers and my listeners are trusting me every week when they're reading the newsletter and they're listening to the podcast. And if I tell them like, Hey, you know, check out generation, you can, I mean, they can feel pretty confident that like, yeah, I actually use that in my own training and racing. And it's like this month's sponsor of the newsletter is, is Tracksmith. They were my first sponsor back three years ago when I took sponsorship on they've been a consistent sponsor and it's like, I race in their gear. I train in it. I, you know, everything right, that you know, everything yeah. that I'm about is consistent with they're about as well. And I think there's value in it for, for them because they're partnering with a, a trusted source in the space. There's value in it for me because my bills get paid and there's value in it for the readers and listeners because they, they know they're getting an authentic recommendation and I wouldn't like tell them to try anything that I wouldn't try myself. Hmm. All right, and so, that's harder for bigger brands yeah. to do. You know, I I worked for a bigger brand in the space, and you know, not on the sales side of it myself. Which I almost prefer that now because it's like I make those decisions. Whereas we'd have sales guys at competitor because they Put have quotas that they have to, to make. Article. Yeah, and it's like yeah. they've you know they're trying to hit their quota, and it's like because if they don't, they're out of a job. Yeah. So it's yeah. like we'd have brands that we'd partner with where I'm like, what are you doing? Like yeah. like that just is not consistent with like what we're about. And I could go into a whole nother rant yeah. about that. Cause there's some stuff that happened this week in the endurance sports space. I'm just like, what the hell is going on? But <laughs> anyway, I won't do that.
1: Awesome. Well, I won't take too much more of your day, but how about just like a quick round of, um, sure. kind of like what's in your toolkit. Um, so on the tech side, like what helps keep you moving on training or whatever it is that you're doing
0: or your go-to apps or. So I actually, I have no. Social media apps on my phone. I've taken them all off because they were just too big of a distraction. doesn't mean I don't use them, but I use them pretty deliberately. But I have for a watch like for myself like I use a Coros watch it's a newer smaller brand in the GPS watch space sponsored my newsletter a year ago yeah. I have their first watch which just called the pace it does everything I need it to do so I've got like their app on my phone and that's synced in with Strava so I can just you know I go out for a run I upload it and it goes right to Strava so that's what I'm using as like my main timing piece as far as shoes go I've always had or at least for the last like 15 years or so I've always had a big quiver of shoes and I am not loyal to any one brand, but I've probably got something from every brand in, in my kit. I like Nike's trail shoes and I'll race in their Vaporfly 4%. I have a pair of Hoka Rincon's and a pair of Clifton's that I'm running in right now, a pair of new balance, 1500 flats that I'll wear on the track. Got a couple pairs of ultras, one pair that I'll wear in the gym, one that I'll wear on the trail. Um, got sock any freedoms on my feet right now that that are retired from running uh, that i just now kick around and so you know with shoes i'm uh, you know i just find something that's comfortable for my feet that i enjoy wearing you know as far as a, a kit goes like i have tracksmiths a sponsor of mine i have yeah. a lot of their stuff and i bought a lot of their stuff myself and i race in their gear and i'll train their stuff but i have you know a lot of patagonia trail stuff that i wear i love their shorts i think they make the best trail like best running shorts period like five inch strider pros have five pockets in the back i can put keys and fuel and all kinds of stuff and you know it's funny as a younger runner like i didn't carry anything with me on a run it's like now i sometimes i got my phone i've got my keys i've got like this morning i threw my headlamp in there after i didn't need it anymore you know, I like having pockets for the marathon. So I've got like, you know, a lot of, a lot of Patagonia gear as well. Um, on the coaching side of things, I use a platform called final surge, yeah. which is software that I use to manage my athletes training and communications. And it has been great for me the last two years. And it syncs with Strava. Um, I've used, you know, I didn't know what Strava was before I moved to the bay in 2014. And I got on within my first week of being here cause everyone else was on it. And, you know, that's become sort of my de facto training log i upload all my training there don't hide any of it so if people ever have questions about my training i should just send them there and look at it and i'll put feedback in there as well and a lot of my athletes will use strava as well and that syncs to final surge and i can look at their stuff that way what about on newsletters books podcasts that kind of you go to that i go to so I actually subscribe to a bunch of newsletters because uh, I just I like that yeah. format. Um, one that I get every day has nothing to do with running. It's called Next Draft. It's by mm-hmm. a guy named Dave Pell. And he's been in the newsletter game for a long time. And he has answered a lot of my questions in the past about newsletters. I've just emailed him you know let him know what i'm up to and i have a, a question here and there and and he puts one out almost every day unless he's on vacation and and it's very like kind of quick hit snoozy style but he injects his own personality into it. i think he does a great job and he's been doing it successfully for a long time i also subscribe to allison wade's fast women newsletter um allison was one of my editors back when i kind of got started in this whole racket and in the early 2000s she was at she had the fast women website, which was actually owned by New York roadrunners at the time. And some of the first interviews I ever did were for that site. And Allison ended up going into coaching after that, uh, collegiately for a while. And then she had a couple kids and hadn't been working. And she got in touch with me about a year ago and was like, Hey, I'm thinking of like kind of relaunching this fast woman brand. Like, what do you think I should do? I'm like, I think you should totally do a newsletter. Um, and I think a lot of people would subscribe to it and she's very good at what she does. And it's very thorough. It's more, like I'd say my newsletter is kind of more personality driven and has some analysis and, you know, links to things that I'm reading and paying attention to, whether they're involved in running or not. Hers is just very comprehensive. Like anything that's going on in women's running you're gonna see it. You're gonna see it. And it comes out every Monday morning and it's long. I mean, she's got it's not it's not just results either. She's got a little commentary of her own in there, but She's doing a great job with that. Uh, So that's one that I subscribe to. I think that's probably it as far as like newsletters go in terms of podcasts. I mean, I share a lot of them in the morning shakeout every week. I'm a big fan of the rich roll podcast. You know, I like uh, a lot of NPR shows like fresh air is great. I love Terry gross. She's great interviewer. Um, How I built this is a cool podcast. Uh, you know, I, I have a very like entrepreneurial spirit. So I like hearing how other companies came to be. And I learn a lot from them. I mean, I look at podcasts, whether it's my own and I'm actually getting to talk to someone and ask them questions or I'm listening to one, like that's continuing education for me. Like I'll sit there like with a notebook like you have now, and I'll just sit there taking notes like I would in a class, like it was a lecture. So those are some of the, the big ones for me in terms of podcasts, newsletters, what else? Websites I visit. um, You know, I'm always scouring the internet for like running related stories. I don't really have a method to that madness. It's kind of chaotic, but I'm a bit of a tech nerd and like kind of closet like tech fan. And there's still some blogs in that space that I follow. There's a guy named John Gruber who has a blog called Daring Fireball. And I'd love to actually get him on my podcast because I've heard him allude to in his podcast that he'll run from time to time just as a means of fitness. I don't think he knows. You know, a lick about the sport of running, but he's been doing Daring Fireball as his job since like 2007. Yeah. And he is very well respected in that space. And I've, I've like my sponsorship model, I borrowed that from Daring Fireball. And I'll visit, you know, it's funny. He, he has not evolved with a lot of this no. stuff. Like he, and he talks about it on his own podcast, which is called the talk show. And it's kind of this long rambling show, but he'll, you know, he talks about how it's like, he hasn't even optimized his, his website, which he built himself, uh, for smaller screens. Uh, it still renders pretty small. Like he, he's like, yeah, I should have done a newsletter. He's like, I haven't done a newsletter. People still just like type in daring fireball or put it into an RSS feed
1: came to an event we did in. New York for Instagram. It's yeah. the only time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and he's still, but he's still yeah. like, he's had people reading his stuff and he's, and forever. it's like traffic's yeah. been consistent forever. And and it's like, that's something that I aspire to. It's like, I want people who read the morning shakeout or listen to the podcast. Like even if they're not interested in a particular guest, not that I expect them to listen to every episode or read every article, but it's consistently good enough that they keep coming back, and that's something that like I take a great deal. You ever got tech meme?
1: On yeah, the tech side? yeah. Look yeah. at tech
0: meme and things like that. So
1: that was always interesting because it had that like during fireball, you knew when Steve Jobs was alive that was going to, like he was seeing that right. Yeah, like, and tech meme is the same in the sense that every tech exec is they start their day looking at tech memes. Yeah,
0: exactly. And your articles there, there you see it. And his consistency is really impressive. And, and again, that's like a a major theme in my life, whether it's, you know, training, coaching, just day to day life morning shakeout. I mean, I haven't missed a week in 201 weeks now. Uh, I'm trying to get, I've been pretty good with the podcast over the last like 50 or so. I'm trying to keep the podcast on every, every week. And it's like, that's something I look at, uh, a guy like john gerber who's made a living writing daring fireball for 12 years now big reason for that is is the consistency of it
1: all right last question um intersections across sports where there's learnings going both ways like where have you seen that is it happening at the level it should be how do you mean so you know I, this is like me doing my research personally like i look at surfers who mm-hmm. have a lot of exercises, right? Like for when I'm going to go on a surf trip. I'm looking at next this weekend, I'm doing a big bike race. So I'm studying biking training mm-hmm. and you see consistent themes and like strength is important. Oh yeah. Right. But like, you know, cycling has power that came onto the scene mm-hmm. 15 years ago and it's really changed the way people train in that space. So where are their intersections happening all over the, pla- the progressions
0: yeah i mean all over the place i mean i think runners especially and coaches pigeonhole themselves in a way it's like well this is the way people have trained for this event for years and it's all about running and these are the workouts you have to do and blah 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 and i as i was saying earlier like i look at the athletes I coach is athletes who specialize in running. So, you know, it's working on their overall athleticism. It's like, even if they're training for long distances, getting them to realize the importance of sprinting from time to time of getting in, in the weight room of paying more attention to how they're actually moving. My wife comes from a swimming background and she swam collegiately and has been in the pool since she was four years old. And I mean, I can keep myself afloat in water, but I'm not a swimmer at all. Um, and, and a couple of years ago we were in San Diego for vacation and she had me like actually take a lesson with her master's coach in San Diego and he was great and you know, he he approached it from a very technical standpoint and and this is how they start training you as a swimmer. When you're a kid, like you get in the pool and you do drills and you work on your stroke and you get that down and then you work on these workouts that are going to help you improve your fitness. If you're in it to race and running, doesn't work that way, especially at the youth levels. It's like, well, let's just get the kids running. And, and that's important to a degree. And certainly in high school, it's like, oh, like, I'm a good example of that. Like, I didn't have a good program, but you see it even now with like, you know, quote unquote professional coaches. It's like, they write their runners workouts and it's like, that's what it's all about. And it's like, let's start with the technique side of things. Any other sport, whether it's like swimming, whether it's throwing a baseball, you maybe not all, maybe, maybe yeah, not so much risk. with cycling, but it, it's all about like, how are you moving and, and like, what's the technique involved? And let's nail that down first before we start layering on top of it. And oftentimes with running, you see, you know, it's just about building fitness and throwing workouts at people. And it's rare that runners will spend time optimizing their form unless they're hurt. But it's interesting though. You see like some people who are new to running and, and I pay attention to this, like with beginners, but maybe they come from like another sport, and oftentimes it's swimming, and they're like, "Well, what trills should I be doing?" And I love when they ask that question—that they're thinking that way, because people who come from a pure running background, they they don't do that. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's something with a lot of my athletes that I coach and something I do myself. It's like you know, we pay attention to like kind of technique, um, and then I'm always I'm always looking at how people train for, you know, for other sports. Like you mentioned, power and cycling uh, kind of revolutionized the way people train yeah. for cycling, and power is starting to make some inroads into running. The technology's not there yet. And the, the mechanisms like a little bit different and it's not quite as reliable, but I think that's interesting, uh, in terms of how we, how we quantify training. I mean, you know, looking at, at heart rate, looking at perceived effort, looking at pace, like all these different ways that we can kind of quantify training and prescribe it, uh, is interesting to me. But I look at other sports and, you know, it's always been interesting to me. Swimming is like, you know, I'll ask Christine, like, what'd you do in the What'd you do in the pool? And she's like, Oh, we did, uh, you know, we swam 5K. And I'm, I'm like, swim 5K straight? She's like, No, no, no. You would never do that. Like, you would, you know, we did, yeah. you know, 50s or we did 200s or a mix of them. And, you know, my base was this. And then we, you and know, we went the to this, toxic or what? Where you're holding your breath, yeah, like stuff that you just, don't yeah, it's even, it's kind of all intervals, right. even yeah. on the easy day. And it's yeah. like, huh, like running, like we think of intervals as just like kind of hard training, and and this sort of thing. And it's like it's just like thinking like forces me to think about things differently, and I'm. I'm not one who's afraid to like experiment with just different approaches Mm -hmm. to, to how, you know, how I'm doing things. So I don't know if that, that answers your question, but I'm always trying to look at different sports and like, you know, what people are doing to, to improve and seeing if there's a way, or if there's just something I can take away and apply to, to my own approach or with the athletes that, that I'm working with. And I like, you know, back to podcasts is a good one. One of my favorite ones is Finding Mastery with Michael Gervais and he'll have mm. uh, a lot of athletes on, you know, business folks, he's had like Sanjay Nadella from Microsoft on there, but he's had coaches too. And and he had like Steve Kerr on, uh, coach of the warriors and just talking about building like team culture and, right. you know, just the approach that he's taken to get them, you know, where they are and like, not all of that's directly applicable to running, but I pulled like two or three pretty good gems out of that too. So it's just like learning from, you know, I think we can learn from other sports. I think there's more, if you really look in between the cracks, like there's more similarities than there are differences.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. This yeah. was super fun. We're we're sort of neighbors, so it's good to get that connection.
0: Well, until <laughs> uh, yeah, until we just bought our house oh, and, yeah, and moved. moved. I, I was like yeah. probably a half a mile from
1: here. Yeah. So. All right. We'll I'll see you on the trails.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.